And well, a couple summers ago, I took a, a motorcycle class from Team Oregon. It was a class on how to improve your cornering and braking skills, which is important, cornering and braking skills on a motorcycle. And the class was out at Pat's Acres, Pat's Acres in Canby, which is a, a relatively tight go-kart track. And there were, there were two main parts to the class. So the first part of the class was uh, direct instruction time, where you sat through some, some talks from the instructor on, on technique and things of that nature. And then the second part of the class was practice time out on the track. And so we all got there and lined up with our motorcycles by some, some benches outside. And as the class started, before we got any, into any of the instructor talking part, uh, before we had any time to practice skills or anything else, one of the main instructors took his motorcycle out on the course, and we all watched as he ran the course a couple times, and he did so in a very impressive way. So, so we were all very impressed with his cornering and braking ability. And then he came back, and we gathered around, and we started in on some of the direct teaching content of the course at that point. Uh, but given the way he just shown us what it looked like to run the course with a whole lot of skill, so, so because of his very impressive demonstration, um, as, as students in the course, we were all very attentive to the direct instruction that he was then providing. Uh, clearly, uh, what, he had been, what he wanted to talk about was underpinned by his own demonstration of the activity. Uh, probably, uh, we were much more attentive than we otherwise would have been had he not first shown us what it looked like to run that course uh, so well. We needed that demonstration. The, the picture helped us be able to make much better sense of the teaching that he was then providing for us. And you've had various experiences like that, I'm sure, where you've been in a situation where you're needing to, to take in information on how to do something, but before the instruction comes, the teacher uh, provides some kind of demonstration or example of some sort that helps to uh, motivate and, and frame the, the uh, instructional content that's going to be coming. Uh, so in the world of education, there are adages along these lines, like demonstration before information. Or, or sometimes it said, show first, speak second, things of that nature. Uh, and that's because the, the examples or the demonstrations beforehand help the learner take the lessons that are coming much more seriously. Um, so with, with that in mind, as we think about John's gospel and where we're going, um, we actually see that it's, it's this kind of teaching methodology that John is employing for us as he's directing us to consider the significance of who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. Um, so, so, so think this out with me as we remember where we've been in John's gospel so far and where we're going. Uh, first of all, in terms of where we're going in John's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 31, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, uh, but in that last section of John chapter 3, John provides us information. He gives us direct instruction there that is absolutely critical for our understanding of who Jesus is. So if you just look at verse 31, John says, the one who comes from above is above all. Right? John is speaking there. He's giving us direct instruction regarding the, the complete preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is above all. The Father's given all things to him, he'll say later on in that section. And, and it's no surprise that John will end up speaking about the supremacy of Jesus because we know that John's priority is that we would be trusting in Jesus, that we would be believing in Jesus. So John is going to directly instruct us about the preeminence. He's going to directly teach us about the exalted status of the Lord Jesus because John's calling us all through this gospel to put our ultimate faith and trust uh, not only for 
life now, but for life in the world to come. He's calling us to put our, our trust in Jesus. So John wants to make sure that we understand that the one who comes from above is above all, the supremacy of Jesus. And as we think about that truth that's coming, what we recognize is that, is that something that we, we often experience as we're going through this gospel, we, we recognize that John is a very good teacher. Uh, John wants us, as his readers, to see that Christ is preeminent. Uh, obviously, John's spoken to that in a major degree uh, in, the, in the prologue, in the first 18 verses of the gospel. But as we get into the body of the gospel, John doesn't just instruct us directly in the preeminence of Jesus. So, so it's not like right away he goes from the prologue, verses 1 to 18, where he introduces us to the gospel that he's going to write. And then he doesn't immediately jump to chapter 3, verse 31, and say, you need to know the one that comes from above is above all. He doesn't just jump right to that um, because he, he knows what good teachers do. Demonstration before information. So you see what John has been doing now all through the through the contours of chapter two and chapter three leading up to this point is he's been, he's been giving us a series of pictures. He's been giving us a series of demonstrations, if we can put it that way, to help prepare us for the truth of Jesus's supremacy. So so if we just think back over the sections that we've studied uh, in, in the beginning, in the episode of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding where chapter two begins. Remember how we talked there about the fact that, that it was the groom's responsibility in this ancient culture to make sure that there was a sufficient supply of food and drink for the week-long wedding celebration. And maybe you remember how we noted that, that culturally, if, if a groom did not provide adequately for the festivities, uh, he could actually suffer legal action by the bride's family, which of course would be quite the exciting way to start your in-law relationship, wouldn't it? But but if you didn't provide adequate food, adequate wine, you could actually be sued by, by the bride's family for not providing for the celebration. Um, recognizing the wedding was it was a uniquely serious event in that culture in a way that that, that outstripped some of the some of the serious with which we can even take the event in our own time. But back in that episode, you remember the groom didn't provide; they ran out of wine, and instead Jesus worked miraculously to provide not just wine but the best wine. And John's making the point there. That, that Jesus is ultimately the better bridegroom. He, he's the one who provides completely for his people. He doesn't come up short. And, and that superiority of Jesus then continues to run all through the narratives that we've been studying in these last two chapters. So in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus speaks of himself as the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus will prove to be the better temple as he gives himself to secure the purity of true worshipers. Jesus is the better temple. Through him, we have ultimate access to the presence of God. And then in the interaction with Nicodemus, who Jesus refers to as the teacher of Israel. In that interaction, Jesus proves to be the better revealer. Uh, as one who's acquainted with heaven's glories and our need to be born again from above. And then in the reference to the serpent lifted up by Moses, that Numbers 21 reference, Jesus proves to be the better life giver. All who look to Jesus will be saved ultimately from the judgment of God. And then in the section we've been studying the last couple of weeks, Jesus is the, is the supreme expression of God's love for the world. For God loved the world in this way that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. So, so instead of condemnation, we can have eternal life because Jesus is God's supreme expression of love to the world. So, so you see how all these story frames along the way that we've been considering 
In all of these, John has been working to make something really clear. Jesus is preeminent. He's the better bridegroom. He's the better temple. He's the better revealer. He's the better life giver. Jesus is the greatest expression of God's love for the world. We're getting picture after picture. We're getting demonstration after demonstration that that is going to cause us to sit up and pay all the more attention to chapter 3, verse 31, where we're told the one who comes from above is above all. Jesus is preeminent. He's supreme. He's better. He's the one we must be trusting. And that's where John is driving with all of this. But before John gives us that, that pointed instruction in the final section of chapter 3, he has one more picture for us, one more demonstration of the truth that Jesus is supreme. And the picture fittingly comes to us from the experience of John the Baptist, the great witness to Jesus. And, and so in verses 22 to 30, our verses for this morning, uh, we have something here of the high place of Christ theme that John has been developing, that theme is present again as we're given a picture of what it looks like to live a life centered on the supremacy of Christ. All through chapters 2 and 3, we've been seeing how Jesus is above all and will be instructed in that truth very directly in the next section. But first, John, our gospel writer, records a picture from the life of John the Baptist, the prophet, that shows us what it looks like to live this truth out. What, what does it look like to live a life that reflects the supremacy of Christ? Right? What does it look like to have our lives prioritizing the truth that Jesus holds the highest place? This is, this is the question that occupies our minds as we look at verses 22 to 30 this morning. And it's a question that we want to regularly return to as followers of Jesus. What does it look like to keep on living like Jesus is above all? We need to be refreshed in asking that question. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his writing, he speaks of, of two types of seasons of life that can move us away from the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Uh, on the one hand, uh, C.S. Lewis says that there are easy times that soothe us to sleep, as he puts it. So, so there are those days that come and there's, there's nothing particularly pressure-filled about them and we just kind of drift, uh, maybe drift lazily away from considering the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. So there are easy times that soothe us fast asleep. And then C.S. Lewis contrasts that with the fact that there are also what he calls unbalanced times that encourage extremes. Unbalanced times that encourage extremes is how he puts it. And those unbalanced times that encourage extremes, he says, in those times we feel very justified, even very prideful, about positions that we hold on peripheral matters that are so big and alarming in our life, they seem to come into the very center of, of, of the important things that we hold. So, so, so those things then distract us from the preeminence of Christ because something else becomes the most important thing to us. So easy days where we get drowsy about Jesus' greatness or unbalanced times in which we get distracted from Jesus' greatness. Um, these are the two things that we often often deal with. And, and, and maybe you find yourself in one of those two conditions this morning. Easy days or unbalanced times. And what a passage like this one does for us is it either helps wake us up from our easy day drowsiness or it calls us back to center from the distraction that the unbalanced days can bring. And we need that. 
What does it look like to prioritize the central reality of Christ's bigness in my life? The preeminence of Jesus in our lives. This passage helps us with that. And we need that if we're going to be savingly believing in Jesus. And so uh, we'll, we'll look at this passage here this morning. We'll take um, it in three parts. Verses 22 to 24 we'll first of all take together. And we'll look at those verses under the heading persistent faithfulness. Persistent faithfulness. I'll, I'll read those again for us. Actually, verse 22 to 24. Uh, they were told that after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing by Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Uh, so as things begin here, we have a scenery change. Jesus has been in Jerusalem attending the Passover festival uh, for the last few sections that we've been looking at. And now that Passover festival has come to an end and Jesus and his disciples head for more uh, rural areas of Judea, uh, presumably as the text says, where, where water is available for baptizing. And it's in the more remote area that we're told Jesus spent time with his disciples and baptized. Um, were we showing no restraint in the preaching task, we would probably spend a whole sermon on the fact that Jesus spent time with his disciples. But maybe I'll leave that one for you for your own meditation. What an amazing thing that the master of the universe comes and goes out into the country with a few men in order to, in order to develop a more intimate relationship with them. It's an extraordinary truth that's represented there. We're going to resist doing a whole sermon on that. And instead, we'll keep going. But just note that, and maybe you can meditate on it later. Uh, Jesus goes out to this more rural place um, where, where he and his disciples are together, and, and it says he's baptizing. Now, now to get technical, the beginning of chapter 4 actually tells us that Jesus wasn't personally baptizing, his disciples were. And, and that reality connects us with Jesus' uniqueness in John's gospel, as, as John wants to emphasize that Jesus is the one with, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, so that plays into John's themes that he, has, he, he nuances that for us later on. But here John's telling us, in effect, that under Jesus' direction, baptisms were taking place, and we're meant to see a parallel between Jesus baptizing and John the Baptist baptizing. So that's why we have what we have there. Uh, and that becomes clear as we get into verse 24, where we're told that this baptizing ministry of Jesus is going on at the same time that John the Baptist is also baptizing. So that helps us understand something of the, of the purpose of this baptism ministry. John's baptism had had some different theological implications than the new covenant baptisms that we witnessed this morning. It just so happens that as we're working through the course of expository preaching, we can talk about this on a baptism Sunday, which is which is wonderful. Uh, but we, but we have to know that that with John's ministry and and Jesus's disciples, they're engaging in the same thing. There's a preparatory emphasis to John's baptism, to this baptism that's represented here. To get baptized at this time was a way to display your desire to repent and turn to the Lord, looking forward to the Messiah's work. The baptism that we engage in today is looking back, appealing to the finished work of Christ. But all that to say, Jesus' disciple group and John and his followers, they're engaging in this preparatory baptism ministry that the Messiah is coming. Let's return to God, see our need to have him make us pure, all of those kinds of things. So it was a tangible way that people would reflect their desire to be pure before the Lord, anticipating the Messiah's ministry. Uh, and as we have that background in mind, we need to note carefully 
what John, our gospel writer, is emphasizing in all this. Uh, we're always in a little bit of trouble when we're talking about John the Baptist in the gospel of John because we have John the Apostle, John the Evangelist who wrote our gospel, and then we're talking about John the Baptist, the, the, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Um, so we make that distinction. But, but John uh, is emphasizing something here in that there are two main things that come through just in the way John, our writer, speaks about what's happening here. The first thing is this, we need to note that John the Baptist's ministry is, is occurring simultaneously to Jesus' ministry. That's pointed out here. So, so, so not only are we told that this took place before John was thrown into prison, so, so there's ministry going on simultaneously, John hasn't been put in prison yet, but we also have that also word there. Jesus was baptizing, verse 22, John also was baptizing, verse 23. So Jesus is ministering and John the Baptist is ministering at the same time. Um, the narrative emphasizes that. And so we keep that thought in mind for a moment. And we'll note secondly then that in verse 23, we're told that people were coming and being baptized by John. Uh, obviously, people were coming and being baptized by Jesus' disciples too. In fact, more were. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's helpful to note that we have two verbs here in the continuous tense. So we could get more of a sense in verse 23 of things if we said something like people kept coming, uh, people kept coming to John and John kept on baptizing them. We get the sense that this is an ongoing thing that's happening right now. So, so we not only have John's ministry happening simultaneously with Jesus's ministry, but we also have an emphasis on the fact of, of John's ongoing exercise of ministry. Right? He's still doing this. And so just along those lines, we have some insight into this theme that's being developed for us here with regard to living for the supremacy of Jesus. In these verses, we see an emphasis on John the Baptist's persistent faithfulness. He's still going in the ministry that he's called to, which is very significant when we just think about the timing of all of this. Remember, John the Baptist was, was very clear about the task assigned to him by God. Even back in chapter 1, he'd quoted Isaiah 40, which spoke of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. John knew he had a preparatory ministry. He, he was the prophet who was sent to prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Christ. John was calling people to turn from sin, turn back to God, demonstrate their need to be cleansed by being baptized. John was a, a caller to repentance so people could find the hope they need, as John said earlier, in, in Jesus, who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was John's witness. John was preparing people for Jesus' ministry. And now Jesus is on the scene. In fact, Jesus' own direct disciples are engaging in the same kind of work that John is engaging in, calling people to a baptism of repentance. And there's a sense in which we could hardly fault John if he decided that now was a really good time to cash in his prophet pension and move out to his favorite wilderness cave. He, he, he'd preach getting people ready for Jesus. Jesus is here. I'll go ahead and punch out. Now it's a good time for me to be done. We'd find it pretty easy to excuse John for thinking that way. He'd had plenty of pressure in ministry. Right? The religious leaders were constantly harassing him. We, we, we'd have a hard time faulting John if he, if he left a note on his preaching rock that said something like, I did my part, Jesus is here now, make sure you keep looking to him, I'm out. But John doesn't do that. In fact, it's no small thing that a reference to John's arrest is here. 
Because we know from the other Gospels that even after John's been arrested, he continues to speak to Herod, the man who arrested him, about Herod's own need to repent. He keeps on with his message. John doesn't stop with his service to God job even when he's in prison. In fact, in fact, the only thing that finally stops him is Herod's murderous and adulterous wife Herodias uh, cooking up a scheme to have John killed because he won't shut up about repentance. Up until his martyrdom, John doesn't stop being faithful to his task. And this, and this is a central reality to consider when we think about living with the recognition that Jesus is above all. We need to think well on John's example here as we process what it means to live a life prioritizing the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. Prioritizing the, the high place of Jesus means there's no clock on faithfulness in our service to Christ until, until the bell tolls for thee, so to speak. John could have seen Jesus engaged in public ministry and said, well, I guess I'm out. He's here. My task is done. But no, John doesn't stop in his faithful service. People kept on coming. John kept on baptizing. Living in light of the supremacy of Christ means that persistent faithfulness in our calling to serve Jesus is something we never step back from. Our service may look different at different times and different seasons, but, but there's not a retirement date for living for the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, this week... I actually got a Kindle book just because it was it popped up. It was $2 on Amazon, uh, but the, the title intrigued me. It's by John Piper, and it's entitled Rethinking Retirement. I'm getting older, but I'm not there yet. But it was a $2 book, so I got it. Um, and, and I want you just to listen to the, to the first paragraph of this book. It's very Piper-esque, but it's, it's a good word. Listen to how he starts this book. He says, Finishing life to the glory of Christ means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious. It means living and dying in a way that shows Christ to be the all-satisfying treasure that He is. So it would include, for example, he says, not living in ways that make this world look like your treasure. Which means that most of the suggestions that this world offers us for our retirement years are bad ideas. They call us to live in a way that would make this world look like our treasure. And when that happens, Jesus is belittled. And then that's a good word. And it's really that truth that John the Baptist is living out here. Living for the glory of Christ. Living like Christ is our greatest treasure means that our days of service don't stop. Right? Persistent faithfulness is our priority. Faithfulness in holiness. Faithfulness in evangelism and prayer. And building up and supporting our fellow believers. Prioritizing the high place of Christ means there's no clock on faithful service to Christ. That doesn't mean things are easy. You know, Moses finished his days an old man leading grumbling people. Noah entered the ark at 600 years old. Daniel was 92 when he was thrown into the lion's den for having a daily prayer routine. It doesn't mean easy days, but the preeminence of Christ calls for persevering faithfulness. I desire to live a life that displays the truth that Jesus is the treasure I'm living for. Whether it's my time... Uh, in, in my elementary school classroom to my time in an assisted care facility, I desire to display the fact that Jesus is the treasure I'm living for. At least that's, that's what I want to be true of me. But I can check myself by this. You can check yourself by this. It, is Christ's preeminence my faithful pursuit? Is Christ's preeminence your faithful pursuit? Or is something else sneaking into that high place? Right? Comfort, 
social acceptance, financial ambition, professional advancement, maybe a family dynamic that looks a certain way. All kinds of stuff can move into that center highest spot. So this is first. Persistent faithfulness displays the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And then next in verses 25 and 26, we see that living for the supremacy of Jesus also involves present tension. Present tension. This is verses 25 and 26. I read there that then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So here we have some controversy brewing. Uh, an unnamed Jewish individual comes to speak with John the Baptist's disciples about purification rites. It is interesting and noteworthy that the complainer would go to the people on the side, not to John himself. That's just something to note, right? But you might remember how back in, in John uh, chapter 1, John the Baptist already had a group of Jewish leaders show up to question him about his practices. And now someone else is bringing up some kind of concern about purification, which would be to, to reference John's baptizing ministry, his baptism as a purification rite in the, in the Jewish mind. And while we don't know what the specific concern was, what the dispute was exactly about in detail, we are shown that this dispute caused direct trouble within John's discipleship group. And that the response of John's disciples to this dispute is, is to go right to John and point out that Jesus is baptizing and everybody's going to him. Right? So, so whatever the dispute may have been, the effect of it was that the disciples of John seem to be envious of Jesus' success, or maybe they're being protective of John. Whatever it is, Jesus has more people going to him, and, and they don't like that. Maybe the disciples are, are frustrated by, by this dispute, and they're losing confidence in John's ministry, and they're wondering, what's going on with John? Even, you know, we're looking over at Jesus, and he's the one who, who you baptized, you know, but, but he's over there doing it. More people are going to him. John, is there something defunct here in the ministry that we've got going on? There's, there's trouble brewing there. In fact, we get the sense that the disciples are upset just in the, in the big word they use here. Everyone is going to him. Everyone. We, we know that when the biggest words start being used, we've got a bit of a situation. In fact, we figure this out very quickly in marriage, don't we? That if our spouse tells us that we do this or that wrong all the time, the best response is not to say, no, I don't. Right? I, I do it wrong 67% of the time, but 33% of the time I'm really nailing it. You're totally wrong. We, we don't say that. That would be a rookie marriage mistake. Because if our spouse tells us that we do everything wrong all the time, every time, this is not a time to break out the logic, is it? This is a time to recognize something is upsetting, the blissful utopia that is my marriage. Right? The disciples here know that not all the people are going to Jesus. Clearly, they're baptizing people. We just had present uh, active continuous verbs there. John's in the, engaged in baptizing people. Not everyone is going to Jesus, but everyone is going to Jesus. We, we get the sense of what's going on there. Right? His disciples are upset. For whatever reason, everyone's going to Jesus. Maybe, maybe because of the dispute, they're just starting to lose, lose faith in John's ministry. You know, if you were better, John, more people would be coming to you instead of to him. Whatever it is, things are not well among the crew. There's tension in John's ministry. And, and as John will make plain in a moment, the disciples are actually noticing something that actually marks out the fruitfulness, not the failure of John's ministry. Right? But they're missing it right now. It's actually the mark of fruit in John's ministry that everyone's looking to Jesus, isn't it? 
Right? But, but, but what this tension situation does punctuate is that in living for the preeminence of Christ, even in living very faithfully and fruitfully for the preeminence, preeminence of Christ, conflict and tension can be present. Because Jesus is gaining popularity and John is going the other way. His disciples are upset. John's being faithful. Discord is present. And we need to be prepared for this if, if, as, as we live for the preeminence of Christ. We, we need to be prepared for this kind of thing, even as we think about our corporate life together as a church. You know, reading through the book of Acts, in the first few chapters of Acts, John Stott makes the comment that, that as the word of Christ spreads so gloriously in the book of Acts, as that's happening, the church is in constant threat of persecution from the outside, division into two sides, and deception from the inside. Living for the supremacy of Christ can bring tensions corporately. And, and it can bring tensions individually as well, can't it? It, it may be that, that you're seeking to live your life exalting Christ above all, but right now that seems to be bringing a little more trouble than peace in your life. We always check ourselves when that occurs to, to make sure we're walking wisely. But at the same time, we don't let the presence of trouble unnecessarily discourage us. A person may be upset with us because we're seeking to follow Jesus faithfully. The situation at work may be really uncomfortable and sticky because we're seeking to follow Jesus faithfully. But we don't lose heart in those conditions. In fact, in fact, the hardship might even be an encouragement because in the sphere of following Jesus, it's often in the midst of the greatest pressure that the most effective gospel work takes place, which, of course, is proved by the cross. So living for the preeminence of Christ, it involves persistent faithfulness, verses 22 to 24, and it also involves present tension, verses 25 to 26. And then lastly, we see that living for the preeminence of Christ is underpinned by a two-part perspective, a two-part perspective. This is verses 27 to 30. I'll read those again for us. Verse 27, John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John's disciples have gotten worked up about this, this greater apparent success of Jesus's public ministry. And John basically gives them a quick two-part sermon on the perspective we need if we're really going to serve Jesus. Part one is this. There's a theological principle you seem to have forgotten, John says. No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. The Apostle Paul, he applies the same theological principle in his ministry in the context of the rising pride in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says to them, Who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? In fact, Jesus will basically say the same thing to Pilate during his trial in John chapter 19. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven, John says. So, so Don Carson makes the comment that John the Baptist cast his response in the form of a maxim that is extremely broad. Then he goes on to say, God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims. For a human being does not have anything but what he has received. In a genuinely theistic universe, 
this must be true as frequently forgotten as it is. So John the Baptist gives this reminder. He reframes things for them theologically. Whatever fruitfulness we have or whatever lack of fruitfulness we may perceive to be having, that is God's domain. We're called to be faithful. The fruitfulness belongs to God. And we need to hear that word of wisdom. It can be discouraging to seek to live for Christ even in the place we do, in the schools you go to, in the friend groups we foster, in the working environments that we're in. Uh, When I was in Kansas, aside from wanting to not be in Kansas anymore, one, one lady told me that in their elementary school classroom, public elementary school classrooms, they pray regularly. That's a very long way from Portland. I meet friends in my seminary program who live in different places in the United States where you, where you plant a church and the expectation is, is that about 300 people will be there in three years. It's the average expectation. Right? So three years to 300 is the church planting rule of thumb in certain places. In Portland, things are much different. Right? If a church plant is even able to continue, which is a big if, right? even if it's able to continue, the rule in Portland is eight years to 80, right? not three years to 300. Right? And that was before the pandemic. But, but that doesn't stop gospel witnessing, does it? Because the Lord will give what He will give. Our job is to be faithful, not envious, not looking with rivalry at our eyes on other ministries. It's God who gives according to His purposes. We need that reminder that constantly as we seek to live out corporately our, our, our identity as the church of Jesus Christ. And we need that reminder personally as well. Because we could be praying for people and trying to look for opportunities to share the gospel. And it just feels uh, like so much less effective than when others do it. Right? We see fruitfulness of others. And, and, my, and my seemingly small and ineffective attempts at witnessing. But we have to take heart because we know it's God who grants the fruit in His timing and for His purpose. Like John the Baptist, our job is just to keep going faithfully. So, so John gives his disciples this principle in verse 27. It's God who gives. That's, that's the point. And then John gives him the second point of his sermon where he, where he speaks to a primary priority in verses 28 and 30. So verse 28, John affirms what, what his disciples should have just known. This should have been really obvious to them. I'm not the Christ. Right? John said that already. John's making that the point of his ministry. He tells his disciples that they should remember that he's been witnessing to this very fact. I am not the Messiah. Instead, John says, I'm like the groom's friend. Jesus is like the groom. His people are like the bride. That's a metaphor that runs all the way through Scripture. It's the way the Lord speaks about His people. Actually, that's a very interesting claim on John's part to the deity of Jesus, where God is the bridegroom in the Old Testament. Right? But, but John's saying here, I'm like the best man. John, John says that the point of my ministry is not to get the attention, but to rejoice when the groom is the center of attention. My joy is complete when Jesus is exalted as the one people are looking to. Like a good best man, when Jesus gets all the attention, that is a joyful day for me. That means I'm doing my job. In fact, it all boils down to this, John says in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the third must statement in John chapter 3, if you notice that. You must be born again, verse 7. The Son of Man must be lifted up, verse 14. Now, he must increase and I must decrease. The increase of Jesus' reputation is not a matter of preference. The increase of Jesus' 
reputation, the increase of attention upon Jesus is not just a how things happen to turn out here. No, as one commentator said, there is a compelling divine necessity represented here. And John knows it. Jesus must get bigger. I must get smaller. I exist to get smaller so that Jesus will get bigger and that fills up my joy, is what John is saying. Which is quite the statement. The story is told of some Americans who visited England during the days when Charles Spurgeon was preaching. Uh, Spurgeon was no doubt one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. Uh, but, but these tourists are going to London and they're told by some others that they need to go hear two men preach while they're there. Uh, the first preacher was named Joseph Parker and the second was Spurgeon. So on Sunday morning, these tourists, they go to Joseph Parker's church. And as it's reported, they were, they, they were totally amazed by the man's preaching. And in their record of the event... This is what one of them wrote down. I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever there was. And this group loved his preaching so much they planned to go back for the evening service, except schedules changed and they realized that if they did that, they wouldn't get to hear Spurgeon. So that Sunday night, they go to Spurgeon's church. And this was the recorded comment after that service. I do declare it must be said, for there is not no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. Joseph Parker, look at me. Spurgeon, look at him. This is what it means to live for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We are not concerned with our own reputation. In fact, truth be told, if we will live for the high place of Jesus, that means we will go down. It might be a decrease of reputation as I remain faithful to Christ. That decrease can exist in many different ways. But, but we must be fixed on the thing that really matters. Jesus goes up. I say, look to Jesus. My neighbor might look at me in a funny way. I say, look to Jesus to my neighbor. Right? I say, live for Jesus. My coworker may label me in a demeaning way. Down I go. But still, I live for Jesus. Up he goes. If I endure hardship for Jesus, my family may think I'm unwise and I'm foolish, but I will give preferential place to Jesus in my life and I will serve him. In my decrease, the glory of Christ will ultimately rise. I mean, what else would we expect as we follow a king who proves his greatness by dying on a cross? This is the way things go in the kingdom of Christ. And, and, and we know uh, we need the Lord's help with this. We feel our weakness in this, but it is precisely in the felt weakness we experience that genuine humility is worked in our heart and a genuine dependence that helps us recognize our need for the Savior all the more. We need that power of Christ to be put on greatest display in our lives. And so this is, and so this is our song. He must increase, but I must decrease. Because the one who comes from above is above all. That's for next week. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so, Father, we do pray we would live in response to this truth that the supremacy of Christ would be paramount in our lives. We know so many things can move to that center place, uh, the most important place in our hearts. But we desire, both as a church, congregationally, and as individual members of it, Lord, we desire that we would uh, have Jesus in that highest place, be living our lives in a way that reflects that and brings attention to him. Uh, he must increase as we decrease, and we long for that to be the story of our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.